You're listening to Sacks in the Basement, a production of the Broadcast Basement Limited, where every show is 30 minutes of good and comes from a basement bar on the south side of Chicago. Pull up a stool, pour a cold one, and join us right now for Sacks in the Basement. Heard everywhere podcasts can be found and always at SacksInTheBasement.com. Chris Getz is making moves, my friend, and he's making moves outside of the organization, bringing in different names. And I'm going to tell you something right now. You might not have gotten the outside hire from Jerry Reinsdorf, but is it possible that the guy who happened to be in the building just happens to have enough common sense to say what's happening here with the people that have been here forever is bad, and I have to go outside of my organization and find other guys to bring in who have had success in certain areas and bring that success to the White Sox. I feel positive looking at the names that are coming out uh, already added into the White Sox front office. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's this is when we've been sitting here spinning webs and tails of hope, right? When we've been we've been trying to find the silver lining on the White Sox cloud that now has Chris Getz's face plastered upon it as though he were a tortoise or a fluffy bunny. No, we, we were looking for something like this, right? We were looking to see, would he just sit there and say, it's the same staff, it's the same group, but I've got better ideas, you know? And and that's not a good recipe for success for anybody, right? To sit there and say, we're going to do the same thing over and over again uh, that we've been doing for the past 40 years, but I'm going to do it slightly differently, and that's going to be that's going to be all the difference in the world. No, instead, he goes out, he gets the farm director from the Diamondbacks, Josh Barfield. They are preseason. Keith Law has their farm system ranked fourth. That's great. Astounding. Ahead of Tampa Bay behind Baltimore. And Baltimore is, you know, prospect loaded. And let's think about the Diamondbacks. Let's think about that for just a second. That's a team that had a bunch of young pitchers competing for spots and not just one person that you were like, well, this is the guy we're hanging our hat on. If it doesn't work out, we're screwed. Like if he hurts himself. Or if he just isn't what we expect him to be, we don't have a backup plan, so everybody better stay healthy. It was the same thing with their outfield. They had so many outfielders that were young and hungry and there and ready that they just got to pick the best ones. And other guys were shuffled on off or shuffled back to the minor leagues because they had depth and they had development. I already knew that about the Diamondbacks before you said this guy was hired by Chris Getz. And he's the farm director and he's moving into assistant GM. And again, you got to think to yourself like, well, who gets fired out of that? I don't know if we'll ever get like the list of firings. They're just going to be guys that disappear from the media book. But I mean, it's something interesting to speculate on. And you could speculate on that at Cork and Carry at the Park, 33rd in Princeton, the home of the podcast for fans, by fans, socks in the basement, uh, right in the shadow of the ballpark there. Two for one burgers when you dine in on Mondays for non-socks home games, extensive bar with rotation at craft beers, familiar favorites, spirits, and wines. Your home base for White Sox pregame, postgame, and viewing parties. I'm going to be out there, I think, next Tuesday. I think that's the last set of tickets that we have on our season ticket plan. I'm going to get into a very interesting thing that the White Sox are offering season ticket holders who are saying they don't want to renew because that was offered to us in the past week. And I can't wait to tell you about it. But again, check out everything that Cork and Carry has to offer at CorkandCarry.com and stop by and see them at 33rd and Princeton in the shadow of the ballpark. All right, so we've got Barfield. Tell me a little bit more about this guy. What are you, what are you chomping at the bit to tell me about him? Here's their, their their farm director, right? And this is a team that 
operates in a way that I think Jerry Reinsdorf would want to operate, right? They're, they're not, they're not a big market team. They're not the smallest market team. They're somewhere where they can afford, say, Madison Baumgartner as a contract, right? They can have a big name guy or a big dollar amount guy. He's, he's, you've got a farm system there that produces not necessarily always top end talent. Now it did produce Corbin Carroll, who is, you know, just, he's a star, uh, you know, that is a star player, but even guys like, you know, uh, Paven Smith, that's a guy that they produce that is just sort of an all everything. He's what you kind of hope Gavin Sheets would be, uh, with, without maybe some of the power, the, the idea behind getting that farm director is, can we take not a prospects, right? Can we take guys that have some level of talent and turn them into something useful? If not a player on your roster, someone you can use in deals, because it looks like the Diamondbacks have been able to convert on some of their players that they developed in the minor leagues to go and acquire things that they want to go and acquire, which is another problem that the White Sox have had. So that's that's why I feel really, I feel positive about the idea of somebody coming in from outside the organization who who can bring a fresh perspective. I mean, this guy they got from the Giants, Ed. Brian Bannister, son of Floyd. Director of uh, of pitching? What a weird title. My name is Brian Bannister. I am director of pitching. What does that mean? I don't know. I'm just in charge of all the pitching. Well, yeah, and, and that's literally what it is, right? He's the guy that organizationally makes sure that the major league pitching coach and all the minor league pitching coaches and any pitching coordinators that might be roving instructors are all going to teach the same things and teach the same fundamentals and principles, right? He's the guy that's sitting there going, this is what I think works, for example, for our ballpark. This is what we want to identify in a pitcher. This is what we want to, this is how we want to make an approach. You think about uh, under Don Cooper, how everybody seemed to throw a cutter after a while. Like that was the, that was his thing. Well, that was Coop as the major league pitching coach, basically acting as sort of a de facto you know, a, a director of pitching because what Coop was going to teach at the major league level, shoot, we might as well teach it down to the minor league level. But that's what this guy is. He's sitting there. He's the guy that's in there going, okay, this is what I want in my arms. This is what I want the profile to look like for these guys. And and not necessarily. Now you think about the Giants and their ability to sustain their competitiveness. It's not necessarily in their rotation where they tend to favor veterans, right? That's a team that tends to favor a veteran rotation and bring in guys from the outside, and they don't produce a whole lot of starting pitching, but their bullpen is always full of guys that they've brought along. You don't hear the Giants going out and saying, I'm going to spend a ton of money on a Roldis Chapman because I need a closer. They're just sitting there going, hey, we got Camilo Duvall, who is you know, a guy that's going to be a closer in waiting, if nothing else, and we're going to use him. And there's you know, the idea that you would have that for the White Sox organization also kind of jives with a little bit of what I think we we heard Chris Getz's vision was, right? To have more coherence throughout the entirety of the system than what we've seen. Because you and I have talked about this a number of times where they get down in the minors and it doesn't seem to be that they're trying to build something up, right? They're trying to build up a guy's strengths or they're trying to, to create something out of nothing with the player. It just seems to be if they have talent ingrained in them or if they came from an, an outside organization with talent – that they're going to get to the majors and we're going to try and train them there, right? We're trying to turn Michael Kopech into a top-end starting pitcher on the major league level because we couldn't wait for him down in the minors. And when he was in the minor league system, we couldn't do anything to add to what Boston had already done for him. But that's why, you know, we have situations like that where he gets up here and they're still trying to figure it out. And, and 
you know, and you're always going to have some tinkering. I, I noticed Dylan Cease is starting to throw, you know, 68, 69 mile an hour changeups in games because he's just kind of screwing around with it and it seems to be working. And why the heck not? You're trying to, you know, extend yourself in the games and whatnot. But Brian Bannister, son of Floyd, has some ties to the White Sox, obviously, but is also just, you know, this is what we're trying to do. We're sitting there going, the Giants seem to have an idea of how to pitch and what to do with pitchers and how to work with them. Hell, Ethan Katz was with that organization as well. So if Chris Getz believes that Ethan Katz can do something with guys, Bannister is going to be the guy to help create, you know, uh, just a top-down system for it. And then you have Gene Watson, who I know comes from the Royals organization, but they didn't get somebody who was low level that was moving up to a position. He's basically making a lateral move because I don't know where else he goes from his position with the Royals as vice president of major league scouting and assistant GM. Like he's got to be basically laterally moving across. I don't know what else you give him because right now we just have the list of names. Bob Nightingale's put out the names. I know Merkin had uh, the first one from uh, the Diamondbacks. I think he had that one first. He had Barfield first. Right. So this is kind of like trickling out. But Getz is making moves right now and basically saying, sure, you might have thought you were next in line because you'd been in the organization. Or you might have thought your job was secured because you weren't fired with the two that that Jerry got rid of a few weeks ago. But this is my ship now. And some of you I've been watching for the last couple of years, and I don't like what you do. See, that's what I see in the moves, Ed. I I see a guy who is in the building, and this may just be hope. This may be blind hope from a fan that just wants to work finally, like just wants to see something positive come out of a team who knows it until the owner dies, that it's going to be run poorly. But you hope that this guy in Getz, who happened to be part of your organization at one point, went to the Royals for a little bit, walked back in the door, and then sat there in a position where he could see there were problems. We've talked about that report now for the last week or so that's out there, that he moved Kenny Williams Jr. out of his position well before Kenny Williams was fired. He had no problem pissing off Kenny Williams because he knew this wasn't going to work and he didn't want that anymore. And now he's the GM and he's like, this doesn't work. This doesn't work. This doesn't work. I don't know if he's got the right guys. I don't know what kind of impact this is going to give you. But I think anytime you bring in people from the outside and and especially I do like the, you know, I mean, you look at the Diamondback system, you go, okay, this might be the right guy to bring in. You look at how the Giants use pitchers. Okay, this might be the guy to bring in. I don't know about Watson, though, because I can't think of an awful lot of pro scouting things that have happened over the years with the Royals where they went out and made a great trade and it gave them a massive impact. And maybe that's just slipping my mind right now. And I don't know what his role is, but I am encouraged by the first two guys that we talked about and the idea that you're outside of the organization because anything inside of this organization is rotten. And if he's cleaning house and moving guys out, that's a good sign. Sox in the Basement fans, switch to a new age of life. Keep mom and dad, grandma and grandpa out of assisted living with help from Hyatt Home Medical Equipment. 
They make it so you can get around on your own. Live independently with stair lifts, ramps, grab bars, lift chairs, and even bathroom remodeling. They work with your insurance. They have 0% financing for qualified individuals. And if you mention socks in the basement, you get an additional discount. They also have the latest and greatest in CPAP machines and testing rooms at their showroom in Evergreen Park. Switch and get your supplies mailed directly to you, plus the latest and greatest in continuous glucose monitors. Learn all about them at hhme.com or stop in and see them today at 3518 West 95th Street in Evergreen Park. I, I want to tell you before I get into a meteor discussion here, because I, I, I kind of got on this track about the worth of ball players this year and how much the Sox actually paid them. Because a couple of guys were worth the contracts they had, and a lot of guys were not. So, so you want to you want to prove scientifically? Yes. What we all saw, which is that the White Sox wickedly underperformed what Rick Hahn said their value was. Yes, that's what I want to do. I want to scientifically prove that, and I think it'll just be kind of a fun exercise because there's a few guys that I found that I, it makes you it makes you go, huh? That's interesting. That guy actually played up to his contract. And a lot of them, it's exactly what you would expect. But before I get into that, uh, Dad talked to his ticket agent this week. And he calls me up. And he goes, I called my ticket agent, told him I was done. Told him I don't trust this team. Told him you got to start winning before I'm going to spend money. Like, he was all fired up, right? And he was told that they have so many people canceling season tickets that they've actually instituted a program where they're offering season ticket holders vouchers. For next year, he was told buy 10 vouchers. You can use them in the section or very close to the section that you normally sit in at that level. Use them however you want to, two at a time, four at a time. Bring a group of 10 to one game. And if you do this, I'll stay at your account manager. And once we get good again and prove it to you, you can renew your season tickets again. That's 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 really that's desperation. Right. White Sox fans clearly overwhelmingly are like, I don't care if you got a new GM or not. You hired internally. I don't trust the owner. Prove it to me. There's a lot of prove it, obviously, if they're offering that to dad. And he's considering it. He's like, well, I'm going on a trip. And he actually did this to him. He goes, I'm going on a trip. Can I get back to you in two weeks? And the guy's like, sure. It wasn't like the offer's coming right off the table. It's like, oh, the offer will be no, there in a no, couple No, no, th- this is not a Labor Day special <laughs> that they've extended for a couple no, of weeks. No, because nobody wants to buy tickets for next year. And they, they, they're just trying to secure some money so they can just kind of hold on to these people because if they start winning, they want to bring them back in. That's some, that's some interesting stuff right there. So I just wanted to pass that along to you because I know a lot of people wonder, like, what was the reaction from the season ticket holders? Well, this season ticket holding family, that's what we got offered to us. When, when he said, no, I'm done. And so I thought that was very interesting that he'll he'll get to kind of hang around in the periphery. And if they get good again, we can dive right back in. And in the meantime, what, we got to pay for like 10 ticket vouchers? He was like, I'm going to go to a couple of games next year. Even if they're terrible, I'm going to use those ticket vouchers. He's like, if that's, sure. all I, if that's all I have to commit to, I'm thinking about it, right? Like that's, that's how they're keeping him still kind of hanging on by a fingernail to the organization because they kind of have to do it that way. All right, let, let's get to this this exercise here. I, I I was looking up how much a win above replacement is, and it looks like generally for a player to, you know, every win above replacement, that metric, 
It's about $8 million. In fact, a lot of a lot of sites will say it's like 8.25, 8.5. We're going to round it down to $8 million. Every time a player is one win above replacement level, it's worth $8 million. That's what Major League Baseball teams pay on average to ball players. That's what they pay almost every year. It fluctuates very, very little over the last couple of years. Every win above replacement essentially cost, on average, $8 million. And what's interesting about that is when you look at the metric, uh, like if you look at B-War, because there's baseball reference, uh, wins above replacement. I know Fan Fangraphs has F-War. It's their metric. They're very similar. But when you look at B-War, they're basically telling you, like, anything below two wins above replacement, you're not even a starter, you're a reserve. So basically, two wins above replacement, you're worth $16 million that year. You're Andrew Benintendi, or what he should have been, and you're a starting ball player. If you have five wins above replacement on a season, you're all-star quality. If you have eight, you're an MVP. That's kind of how their guide works on their site. If you if you are not familiar with the metric, that's like the simplest way to kind of explain it to you. For example, we'll go with a White Sox player as we start this off, no longer on the team. Jake Berger is worth 2.4 wins above replacement so far in 2023 as the season draws to a close. That means Jake Berger is worth about $19 million. That's where he is. Maybe maybe 20. He's very close. 19 to $20 million is what he would be worth on the open market for a 2.4 B-war. Now, the White Sox traded him when he was only being paid a half a million dollars. Kenny Williams, you're an idiot and I'm glad you're gone. But that's an example of of the worth of a player. Do you get this now, Ed? Yeah, yeah, and um and that's where those numbers clearly eluded the prior regime because otherwise <laughs> you would look at a guy who now who by the way his war is only climbing since he's been a Marlin and sit there and go, "Well, this guy is a bargain and a half. We should hold on to him." Right. And then you have guys that are below in their wins above replacement. Lance Lynn was a negative game. So far this season, even with the... Even, they would have been better off not having Lance Lynn. Right. He owes the White Sox $8 million, according right. to this metric. He needs to give them $8 million instead of collecting the $12 million that he did this year off the White Sox. So, again, that kind of gives you an idea of the underperformance. Lucas Giolito, 2.1 B-War. $16 million, 16 and some change is what he was worth. He was paid less than that. He got them more than double what his worth was. Well, and and this that war that still even includes how bad he's been since he left the White Sox. Exactly, right? exactly. So we actually did better than that because that's his war up to this point, and he did terribly out in Los Angeles. Now here's a guy that really sticks out to me, Elvis Andrus. Now remember the conversation we had about him last week. You're only paying him three million. He's not bad for you. He's not good for you, but he's a nice bridge to Colson Montgomery, especially if you move on from Tim Anderson. With a 0.7 war, he's not even worth $8 million, right? But he's he's worth more than three. He actually performed to his contract. Yeah, he, he is he is a league average player. Right. If you paid him four next year or four and a half, and he gave you the same season, he gave you exactly what you ended up paying for. It's all about getting your worth out of what you're paying for. Like I go to Hailstorm Brewing Company in Tinley Park for lunch and I get the gourmet grilled cheese. It's a good value. I add on bacon. I'm getting a lot more. It's really tasty. 
I got to pay a little bit more. The good teams find a way to get the bacon and still pay for just the regular grilled cheese. The White Sox pay for a pound and a half of bacon and get an empty plate. Now, that does not happen at Hailstorm Brewing Company when you stop by for lunch Tuesday through Sunday, opening at 11 a.m. The smoked wings are so good, they've already been on Chicago's best. The beer selection, incredible. Take me to your leader is one of the must-have Oktoberfest of the season. Live music on the weekends, trivia nights, an incredible patio with a fire pit. Enjoy that this fall. Stop in and see the official brewery of Socks in the Basement at 8060 186th Street, right off of 80th Avenue, and see more at hailstormbrewing.com. Now, here's a guy, and we talked about him last week, Mike Clevenger. Mike Clevenger is worth 3.7 B-War this year. Coming off of a complete game, when's the last time a White Sox pitcher threw one of those? Right, he's a $30 million player by that metric. He's a $30 million player. Now, you got him for eight, and when he opts out, it's 12, but he overperformed his contract for you this year. He likes to yell at ball players for lingering too long in the batter's box after they hit home runs in meaningless games at the end of the year. He's got an awful lot of personal problems, and he reminds me of people that I used to see uh, back when I had kinfolk in West Virginia, in-laws, like that when they first walk out of the trailer park, right? Like, he's got a lot going on, that guy, right? Totally worth his money, though. This guy actually is one of the few that not only performed for his contract, but overperformed. I mean, we talk about how we like Andrew Benintendi. 0.2 B-War. Andrew Benintendi was overpaid by about $13 million this year. Well, keep in mind, he's got a backloaded contract. So he was actually overpaid by about 4 or $5 million because he doesn't get into the higher amounts until year two. So maybe he can make up for it. Luis Robert Jr. is a steal. He's 4.7 B-War. Wow. <laughs> yeah. He, Luis Robert Jr. is $40 million. I'm just rounding it here, but I, I'm just kind of doing it in my head. $40 million is what you would pay Luis Robert Jr. for his performance this year if you just gave him the average amount of money that a Major League Baseball player gets for a win above replacement. You're not paying him anything close to that. Like, that's the guy right there, right? That's the guy where right. you sit back and say, Great contract, going to be with you for years. As long as he stays healthy, the sky's the limit. You don't say that about Aloy Jimenez with his 0.3 B-War. He owes a lot of money to the White Sox. Yeah, and and we don't even want to know necessarily what Yoan Moncada's going to owe next year oh, if he get, repeats this well, year. Well, before I get to Yoan, let's get to Tim, because we talked about Elvis Andrus, right? Right, yeah. How is old Timmy doing? Timmy is negative 1.6 war this year. <laughs> Timmy owes the White Sox $12 million. Okay. Maybe 13. That's what he owes the White Sox back. He doesn't, he not only shouldn't get the money he made this year, but he should give that back plus an extra 13 million that he already earned for what he was worth this year on the field. When you sit around and you ask me whether or not you give this guy $14 million next year, I laugh at you. He not, he has to turn back around now and be at almost a two win above replacement after being negative 1.6 this past year. They're going to bridge the Colson Montgomery with Elvis Andros. I guarantee it. The more you look at the numbers and the math, you can't tell me that Chris Getz isn't looking at that. I mean, Yoan Mankata, look at all the money that guy made, and he's a 0.2 war. He shouldn't be getting any of that money. You're going to give him $25 million next year. So I think Getz, as he goes through all of these things, the point of this is this. Getz going through and just looking at the worth of his players, 
And I know that there's so much more. Like, I am not somebody who says, well, your wins above replacement is all that defines you. There's a lot more. I'm a guy who understands that baseball has to do with being clutch sometimes, being a winner, being somebody who knows, who can situationally hit. You know, like it's not always just your wins above replacement, but it's a really nice way of trying to figure out where your contract's even close. And the White Sox have spent so much bad money on this team. And I would imagine a new general manager could very simply sit down and say, what is the worth of my players and what am I paying them? And he sees right away that a lot of moves have to be made. I, I, you know, Look, if they're able to unload Aloy Menes and his money next year, his $13 million or so that he's going to get, when he's basically a replacement-level player coming out of this year, that's a huge move for the White Sox. There's going to be fans who are going to be angry because they bought his jersey, but I think that's the that's the first guy on the list of a guy who might have value that somebody wants to give you something for him, but isn't living up to the money that you're paying him. And somebody might look at the fact that he has that power and he can go on these streaks and he had shown in the past that he could hit. Maybe he was in a bad situation and was unhappy with the team and they may take a chance you might get something for him. I, I would I would write trade bait right over him right now if I was trying to figure out what Chris Getz is doing. Yeah, and and you know when when you're looking at you're looking at all these these players, you know Tim Anderson has had some really high wars, right? He's he's had uh, you know four point seven and a four point two in the past, and not that that long ago. Obviously, his career is not spanning twenty years, so it's entirely possible that he can come back and do this again, right? And he can come back and be some resemblance of his old self. Somebody like Aloy Jimenez, uh, 1.5, 1.4, 0.6, 1.7, 0.3. He's never really ascended to the level of what you're talking about, of, of somebody who's over two that is considered to be, a, you know, kind of a starting level or, you know, in that three to four range where you're sitting there going, this is an exceptional player and a guy you build around. Aloy Jimenez, you know, we, we have to consider the possibility that his 31 homers in 2019 are never going to be repeated mainly because he keeps injuring himself. And I'm sorry, a designated hitter who this year is going to end the season with 110 games, 17 home runs. Um, that's where he stands right now. He's not going to get too much more than that. And can't stay on the field, can't stay healthy. You know, he's he may not be worth what we think as fans he could be worth. And one of the things that was a hallmark of the past few years with this, you and I, every offseason, I think we identified three or four players that we would sit there and say, you know, maybe it's time to move on while this guy still has value before we're proven right that he's bad. And we talked about it with Yohan Moncada a couple of years ago, and we got crap from, uh, from, you know, from Twitter and from fans. Why would you trade this guy? He can turn it around. Uh, we talked about it with Tim Anderson last year in the offseason that maybe uh, maybe now's the time. How many times did I try you know? to trade him in the offseason? A ton of times because you're looking at it going, well, Dansby Swanson, for example, is on his way up. That's Tim what might I said. be on his way down. Oh, my God. How many times did we say it in the offseason? Trade him right now. You could get some pitching help. There's so many things that you need on this team. Trade him right now and go sign Dansby Swanson. Trade him right now and go after one of these other free agent shortstops. There were so many of them that were out there that were better defensively and that were, and were better overall in the amount of wins they provided for the team. But he was the center of your marketing. He was beloved by the fans because he was ours, right? So he's homegrown. Right. But this is why I always go back to the idea that being a general manager, you need to be heartless. You need to be 
heartless as a general manager. You need to look at the names in the piece of paper and say, how do I squeeze four or five more wins out of this team by making a couple of moves? Because that's going to be the difference between the wild card and the division or even making the postseason or getting through the next round. Because in the end, it doesn't matter about all this, 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 well, you know, I connect to him because he's been around for so long. You need to be heartless. This is why I'm encouraged by what we talked about at the beginning of the show. We have a general manager who is heartlessly changing the interior of his front office by bringing in people from outside the organization. Heartlessly. Because trust me, they didn't just bring in those three guys and they're keeping everybody. Three people got fired. Three people are being shown the door. I guarantee you that. We just don't know who they are. Joining me on the phone line right now, our good friend who is uh, getting towards the end of his season. Pretty soon, he will not have to come up with tidbits to put up on the scoreboard at the rate, unless he's still doing it here on Socks in the Basement. The Socks nerd, Dave Marin. How are you, nerd? Good, Chris. And remember, there's no offseason for the Socks nerd, so <laughs> I will I will continue to, to mine nuggets throughout the winter. Awesome. What do you got for us this week? Chris, sometimes I need to go to a happy place. So if you don't mind, I'd like to step back in time and revisit the 1983 winning Ugly White Sox. The Sox honored this team on the final game of the last homestand, and that sent me down a fun rabbit hole. Fun. That team was fun, but they were fun for one reason. They won. As Ozzie Guillen once said, fun is winning, and winning is fun. This team, though, was not so fun early in that season. In fact, I do recall there being some talk that manager Tony LaRusse's job was in jeopardy after a 16-24 and start. The Sox were still four games under 500 on June 15th when two key moves were made. LaRusa moved Carlton Fisk to the second spot for good, and general manager Roland Heeman, God rest his soul, acquired Julio Juice Cruz from Seattle for fellow second baseman Tony Bernazard. From there, the Sox went 71-31 and 31 and cruised into the postseason. Some numbers from that season are absolutely nuts. 20. That team won the division by a record 20 games. 46 and 15. They went 46 and 15. 46 and 15 in the final two months of the season. 68. They won 68% of their games at Comiskey Park. 42 and 5. Floyd Bannister, Richard Dotson, and Lamar Hoyt combined to go 42 and 5 in the second half. But maybe the most telling stat about this club I found was this. Six members of that team played in at least 141 games with Fisk, a catcher, of course, playing 138. In addition, Cruz started all but six games after he was acquired from Seattle. Sadly, that team was a flash in the pan and fizzled in the playoffs, but they did give a new generation of Sox fans a taste of what winning was like. My zinger? Returning to 2023, Dylan Cease should join some elite White Sox company in his next start. The right-hander emerged from his Sunday assignment with 196 strikeouts, With four whiffs in Fenway this weekend, he will join Chris Sale and Ed Walsh as the only pitchers in Sox history to fan 200 batters in three consecutive seasons. It'd be nice if Cease accomplished this while facing that cut-up Chris Sale, but it appears they are going to miss each other by a day or so. That's it, Chris. Probably more than you wanted to know about Juice Pudge, Winning Ugly, and Dylan Cease. You know what just happened? What? 
as we're sitting here recording this on a Tuesday night. What happened? Se- seven minutes ago, Jake Berger just walked it off for the Marlins 4-3. Of course he did. I mean, I love him and I feel happy for him, but I'm just so angry looking at it. I'm just so angry. Socks in the basement. Socks in the basement. Socks in the basement. Socks in the basement. Heard everywhere podcasts can be found and always on SocksInTheBasement.com.